You are listening to the podcast of First Baptist Church of Sevierville, where our mission is helping people move from their point of need to hope in Christ. For more information about our church, head on over to severe.church. Today's sermon, The Longest Day, is part two in the series, Agony and Victory, The Easter Story, shared by Senior Pastor Dan Spencer. Wow, thank you so much to uh, all of our instrumentalists today, all our singers, our choir. Thank you, Pastor Scott. And uh, it's been a good day already. At this time, I want to ask you to please find in your Bible, Matthew chapter 26. We began something last week that's a countdown to Easter called Agony and Victory. And we started last week with the darkest night of Jesus. That night that Jesus went into the upper room with his disciples and shared the Passover meal with them and gave it a new significance. From there, Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane and he prayed through his sorrow and surrendered to going to the cross there in the garden. Today, we're going to continue with the longest day of Jesus. The longest day. You know, there are some days in your life that are so significant that they impact and shape every day that follows them. I'll just mention a a few of those days that I was thinking about this week in my own life. I I look back on uh, July the 21st of 1986, the day on a youth mission trip that God called me into ministry. And I said yes before he could take it back. That day has affected and shaped every day that followed it. And then I think, of course, about uh, December the 16th, 1989, on a cold day in Hannibal, Missouri, when Teresa Schultz of Hull, Illinois, said, I do, and we were married. That day has impacted every day that follows. And then uh, I think about September the 24th of 1991, the day I became a dad. That day has, has affected every other day that follows that. And so there are some days that we look back on that are, are super important days in our lives that affect every other day. For Jesus Christ... The most important day of his life was not a day that he looked back on, but rather a day that he looked ahead to. It was the longest, most painful, most important day of his life. And he knew that day was coming, the day that he would go to the cross and die for the sins of the world. Today we're going to read about that day. We're going to read a lot of scripture today in a section where the gospel of Matthew slows down the pace to the point that we almost get a frame by frame description of all the things that Jesus suffered during a 24 hour period in which he went to the cross to die for our sins. And so as we read through this incredibly important section today, I want to ask that we read through it as an act of worship. You know what I mean by that? 
that, that as I read it aloud and you follow along in your Bible or on the screen, that we read it with an open mind and that we read it thoughtfully and not just sort of let it go in one ear and out the other, but instead to really think about what we're hearing and let the full weight of what happened to Jesus in this section sort of rest on us today. And, uh, and in, in doing that, I think even our attention to God's Word is going to be an act of our worship today. So as we read, I want to point out seven agonies of Jesus. And as we read about these agonies that Jesus willingly suffered, we're going to see his great heart of compassion for us. And as a result, I think we're going to come to know Jesus better this morning. And and we're going to come to love him more than ever before as we think about all of the agony that he went through. And if you have never before trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, my prayer today is that as we hear all of this, that you're going to see a Savior who loves you so much that he was willing to go through all this agony to save your soul. And I pray for your salvation today. So seven agonies of Jesus. The first one is Judas's betrayal. We read about that beginning in verse 47. Matthew 26 Verse 47, and in this section, they're coming to arrest Jesus. It's about midnight at the very beginning of that Friday when Jesus died on the cross. Jesus has, or Judas, has already uh, agreed to betray Jesus to the authorities for 30 pieces of silver. And he said that he was going to give a signal to the mob that came to arrest Jesus, which one Jesus was with a certain signal. So let's read about it in verse 47. The Bible says, And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people, Now his betrayer had given them a sign saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one sees him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. But Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. Kisses were a part of the culture in uh, Jesus' world, uh, like it is in many parts of our world still today. Uh, You may greet a relative with a kiss. It was a sign of great honor to kiss the hand or the hem of the garment of, of a dignitary. And then it was just a sign of affection among friends that you would you would kiss them. On the cheek. I remember when uh, my friends Tim and Tina Louderback went to be uh, missionaries with the IMB in uh, the country of Panama. Tina came from a family where there was not any physical affection shown. Hugs, kisses, really none of that. 
And so she was immersed in a culture where every time she met somebody, they came up and kissed her on one cheek and then on the other. And she said, you know what? I had to get over that pretty fast. And so now even she, as a sign of affection among friends, uh, will give a kiss on the cheek. Here's the thing. That's what makes the sign of betrayal that Judas gave one of the most sickening scenes in Scripture. Judas didn't have to kiss Jesus. He could have just pointed him out and said he's the one. But instead, he walked up and kissed him with a smile on his face, but death on his lips. He gave Jesus the kiss of betrayal. And Jesus knew that Judas was going to do that from the very beginning. The Bible says from the beginning he knew who would betray him. Now, I don't know how you think about that, but I think that any normal human being in the position of Jesus Christ, knowing what he knew about Judas, would have taken care of that guy a long time before. But Jesus didn't do that. Instead, Jesus kept loving him. He just kept loving him. In fact, when Jesus washed the disciples' feet in the upper room, he washed Judas's feet too. He just kept loving him. Now, doesn't that give you hope if you've done something horrible or if you think you're the worst person in the room or if you've been a faker to know that Jesus just keeps loving you anyway? Even in this moment when Judas gives him the kiss of betrayal, Jesus still loves him. There's no anger. There's no bitterness. There's no lashing out from Jesus. Uh, in fact, Jesus is just amazing in this moment, isn't he? His dignity, his restraint, his courage is, is just amazing in spite of the agony. The second agony that we'll read about is the Sanhedrin's injustice. Now, that's the name of the Jewish ruling council in Israel when they assembled the Sanhedrin. Let's read about them as they meet in verse 57. The Bible says, And those who laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard, and he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last, two false witnesses. That's the third time it said that. These were not true witnesses telling the truth. These were false witnesses telling lies. At last, two false witnesses came forward and said, This fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. Now, Jesus said something like that, but he made it clear when he said it, he was speaking of his body, that they would tear down the body, the temp, the body of his, or the temple of his body when they crucified him, and then he would rise again in three days. They took it out of context, twisting his words. 
And it says, then all the disciples forsook him. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, down in uh, verse 62. And the high priest arose and said to him, do you answer nothing? Was it, uh, what is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, Hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered and said, He is deserving of death. Now you need to understand that this was not a legal process where they were seeking justice for Jesus. Caiaphas and the others had already decided the verdict when it came to Jesus Christ. The truth is, they hated him. Because Jesus saw through their religious charade, he called out their hypocrisy, he called them out on their corruption, he refused to kiss up to these men. And so Caiaphas and the others, they had seen the crowds following Jesus and loving Jesus, and they were jealous of him, so they decided Jesus has to go. And they were not going to be satisfied to just put Jesus in jail or to run him out of town. They wanted Jesus dead. Because as long as Jesus was alive, he was a threat to their power. And so these men weren't seeking justice. They were seeking blood. For the Jewish religious leaders, it wasn't a situation where Jesus was innocent until proven guilty. It was more like we need Jesus to be guilty, and so we're going to make sure he is. So what we have here is the leadership of the nation jumping through the hoops that were necessary to legalize his murder. And that's what they did. Look at verse 67. Then they spat in his face and beat him. And others struck him with the palms of their hands, saying, prophesy to us, Christ, who is the one who struck you? And so it begins, the physical pain inflicted on Jesus, and there would be much more to come after this. The third agony Jesus endured is Peter's denials. Let's read about it in verse 69. The Bible says, Now Peter sat outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him, saying, You also were with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you were saying. And when he had gone out to the gateway, another girl saw him and said to those who were there, this fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. But again he denied with an oath, I do not know the man. And a little later, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, Surely you also are one of them, for your speech betrays you. Then he began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. 
And Peter remembered the words of Jesus who had said to him before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So he went out and wept bitterly. Peter bragged about being Jesus' most loyal friend. But all that was gone now as Peter sneaks around in the darkness, refusing to admit that he even knows Jesus. I think what's going on is that Peter is trapped between his love and his fear. He loves Jesus too much to just leave him alone But he fears being exposed as a disciple because of what it might cost him. And so he just hangs around, stuck between his love and his fear, trying to blend in with the crowd. And isn't that what happens to many of us today in the culture we live in, a culture that is mostly hostile toward Christianity Uh, We we get stuck between our love of Jesus and our fear of others. We can confess Jesus is Lord in our hearts, but then still deny Him by being ashamed of Him in front of other people when we think it might cost us something. That's Peter, stuck between love and fear, and he denies Jesus. The fourth agony that we read about is Pilate's politics. Uh, In chapter 27, beginning in verse 11, the Bible says, Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered him not one word, so that the governor marveled greatly. Now, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. So again, there's no justice for Jesus here. Pilate didn't think he was guilty. And if he didn't think he was guilty, he should have released Jesus on the spot. But instead, for political reasons, he offers an exchange. Probably thinking... Well, I always let somebody go this time of year. Here's Barabbas. Everybody knows the guy is a total dirtbag. He's a terrorist. He's a murderer. But Jesus here is a gentle teacher who goes around helping people. And so surely the Jews will choose the right one and release Jesus and condemn Barabbas. Uh, But look at verse 20. The chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Well, what then shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And they all said to him, Let him be crucified. Then the governor said, Why? What evil has he done? 
But they cried out all the more, saying, Let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I'm innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. By the way, no amount of water could wash away Pilate's guilt for his involvement in what just happened. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. In order to pacify the crowd, Pilate, the politician, ignored justice, set Barabbas free, and condemned an innocent man to die. And Jesus, who was in control of all of this from the very beginning, allowed it to happen because he was committed to following through with the plan of redemption, and that plan required his suffering and his death. The fifth agony we read is the soldier's brutality. We read that word in verse 26, scourged. They scourged Jesus. You've probably heard descriptions of the scourge before in brutal, gory, bloody detail. And believe me, it would be hard to exaggerate how bad it really was. The Romans had perfected this form of punishment called the scourge. The scourge was a beating with a whip, with a little leather handle, out of which hung several straps of leather. And the ends of those pieces of leather were fastened little lead balls and also sharpened pieces of bone and rock so that after a period of being beaten with that whip in the scourge, it had the result of just opening the skin. Verse 27 says, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. We are not told how long those soldiers brutalized the body of Jesus in that awful scourging, we do know that sometimes the scourging itself would kill the victim. In fact, they called it the half death. And Jesus endured that for you. Don't forget that. After he was scourged, the soldiers chose to humiliate Jesus by staging kind of a mock coronation. It was a game to them. And you can imagine how painful it was to Jesus after he had just been scourged. And the game went something like this. They said, well, a king needs a crown. 
And so they made him a crown out of thorns. And they shoved that crown of thorns down on the head of Jesus. Somebody said a king needs a royal robe. And so they found some uh, cast off scrap of scarlet and threw it over his bleeding back. A king needs a scepter, somebody said. So they took a reed stick and put it in his hand. Somebody said a king needs to be honored. And so they bowed down on their knees, mocking him and said, Hail the king of the Jews. They were mocking the king of kings and lord of lords, and they didn't know it. In that moment, Jesus could have said, No more. He could have taken full advantage of his power as God and ended it all right there. But he didn't. He allowed it. All that pain, all that humiliation, all that injustice, he allowed it because he knew he must in order to save us. The sixth agony that we're going to read about is the worst of all. It is Golgotha's cross. Uh, Read about it in verse 33. The Bible says, And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of a skull, they gave him sour, sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink. Uh, this was a kind of a sedative that was offered to him, but Jesus refused it. I think I know why. I think Jesus was just determined to do what he had to do, fully conscious, with a clear mind. And so he refused any sedative. Verse 35 says, Then they crucified him. And that's really the only detail we have about the actual crucifixion. We do know that they nailed through his hands and his feet into that wooden cross. And then they lifted him up for everybody to see. Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there. And they put up over his head the accusation written against him. This is Jesus the king of the Jews. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Oh, he he could have come down from the cross. He could have saved himself. But instead, he went through with it. He stayed as they lifted him up on that cross And gambled for his clothes and left him there naked and humiliated and exposed to die. The last agony we'll read about today is the crowd's insults. Please remember that as they walked by all of these people insulting him, Jesus could have stopped it. 
But Jesus knew, they're not taking my life from me. I'm willingly laying it down. That's what the Bible says in John 10, verse 18. And he endured all of this because he was committed to going all the way in dying on the cross for our sins. No quitting, no shortcuts, no copping out, because that's what he had to do in order to save our souls. And Matthew continues in verse 41. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. And even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. All those insults just added to the agony that Jesus endured. And we're going to pick up there next week. But for now, let me bring this sermon home with an important question and an answer for you. The question is this. What motivated Jesus to endure all that agony? He knew it was coming. What motivated him to not avoid it, but to go through with it and to endure these seven agonies that we've read about today? What motivated him? And the answer is very clear in Scripture. His motivation was complete commitment to his Father's plan. And his father's plan was that Jesus would bear our sins on the cross. And Jesus was committed completely to that, no matter what it cost him. That was his motivation. We, we read about that in chapter 26 in a statement that I wanted to save to read until now. Uh, chapter 26, verse 51. He's being arrested, and it says suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand. We find out later it was Peter. And drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest, and cut off his ear. But Jesus said to him, put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? How then, listen to what he says, how then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? In that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple and you did not seize me. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Now, what is Jesus talking about here? Twice he says there, what his motivation was to go through all that agony, it, he was completely committed to his father's plan of salvation, to endure the agony of the cross and to die for our sins. And that agony, all of it, was outlined in many passages of Scripture in the Old Testament given by his father to the Jews centuries before. I want to take the time to just read two of those passages that Jesus was referring to that he knew he must live out. 
first of all, from the great messianic psalm, Psalm 22. Uh, here's what the Bible says in verses 6 through 8. These are the, the heart thoughts of the Messiah prophesied centuries before as he is dying. Psalm 22, 6. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Jesus knew he had to be that man. He had to be the one who was despised by the people and mocked as he died. Verse 16, it says, For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. What does that sound like? It sounds like a crucifixion. But this was written hundreds of years before crucifixion was even invented. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Jesus knew I have to go through with this. I have to be pierced in this crucifixion. I have to endure the humiliation of having my clothes taken away and gambled, as I gambled away as I watched. He knew he had to go through with that. And now from Isaiah 53, the great chapter of prophecy about what the Messiah would go through as he died for us. Isaiah 53, verses 3 and 4 says, He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Jesus knew he had to go through the deep sorrow and rejection of the cross for us. Verse 5 says, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Jesus knew he had to endure the beating and the stripes on his back made by that whip and all the other brutality from the soldiers in order to save us. He knew he had to go through with this if he was going to obey his Father's will. Verse 6 all we like sheep have gone astray and have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Jesus knew that the judgment he had to face as he took responsibility for our sins on the cross was that he would have to suffer and die. And he knew he had to just take it without speaking up for himself, without defending himself like a sheep being shorn. Verse 10, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, you shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. 
He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Jesus, you see, was completely committed to pleasing his Father by carrying our sins to the cross in his body and dying for us. And he did it. He did it. All the agony, all the pain, so that these words could be true for us. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus endured all the agony. Why? So that that could be true for you and me. So that our sins could be erased and we could receive salvation and be brought into the family of God forever. Let's stand together and I want to ask you to pray with me as we just thank the Lord for all that He's done. Lord Jesus, we want to say thank you. Thank you. Thank you. For not stopping short, not quitting, but going through with all of this agony so that we could be saved. Lord Jesus, I, I think about how you did that for me. And I'm just humbled. I know I'm not worthy of that. But it just makes me more grateful to you and it makes me love you more. As, as I read through all that you did, all that you suffered to save me. Lord, it, it just makes us love you even more. And so I, I pray today, Lord Jesus, for anyone here who is still lost in their sins, that today they would look to you, Lord Jesus, for salvation. They would realize what you've done, what you suffered as you died for our sins on the cross. And I pray that believing in you, they would trust you for salvation today. God, I pray those who are lost would be saved today. And we thank you for making a way so that our sins could be forgiven. We pray you bless this time. Your will be done now. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe and share. And if you want a pastor to follow up with you regarding today's message, reach out to us at severe.church slash follow up. Thanks again for joining us on the First Baptist Church Severeville podcast.